Great start. Hey everyone, um, let me just add my welcome to Melissa's. I'm Janet, I'm recovered from compulsive eating and bulimia and happy to be here tonight with all of you. Um, so on Monday, we started the chapter working with others and we got through a chunk of it. So we are going to pick up where we left off on page 96. If you have the book, you can follow along. If not, it's fine. I'll just be yapping away. And so you can listen as you see fit. Um, I'm on the second full paragraph and it says, suppose now you're making your second visit to a man. It says he has read this volume and says he's prepared to go through with the 12 steps. So we talked last week that the first time we meet with someone, we have what I call the Starbucks conversation. We're over a cup of coffee, a cup of tea, and we're just getting to know each other. We tell them our story to hopefully whet their appetite. So they'll say, what did you do to get better? And so hopefully they feel if she can get better, maybe I can too. And then what we generally do before we say, okay, I'll sponsor you, let's get going. We wanna make sure they mean business. And here's why, not because we're so high and mighty and we don't wanna waste our time. It's not that. But let's say we start working with someone and they don't mean business. They're not willing to go to any lengths. Well, after a week or a month, they're going to drop out. And then they'll say, this program doesn't work. Instead of us gently saying, if someone says something like, you know what, I'm not willing to be on a food plan or, you know, do whatever, then we say, we're still friends. You're definitely welcome at meetings, but unfortunately I, I can't sponsor you. It would almost be like um, a nurse practitioner who coaches diabetics and someone came to her and said, okay, I want you to help me with my diabetes. And she says, okay, good. You know, read this manual on how to inject insulin. And the person says, no, 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 no. I'm not doing insulin. I don't like shots. Well, she's not going to say, well, okay, I'll still coach you anyway. It's like, this is what I know how to coach with insulin. So it's because it won't work. So, but let's say the, the person says, I know what this program's about and I'm willing to do it. We give them something to do. It may be, um, I'll generally say, okay, listen to a podcast, write down three things that stand out to you and any questions. And then text me when you're done and then we'll talk about it. So it's like some work. They've got to, you know, invest the time, invest some effort, and then once they do, then it's like, okay, here's everything this program requires. Are we going to work together? But it says even more, we go further than that. If someone means business, we can help them with jobs, um, with things like that, let people stay in our homes. But it says, if that's all they want, don't do it. It says, permit that and you only harm him you'll be making it possible for him to be insincere, insincere if he's trying to impose upon you for money, connections, or shelter. And I think that word connections is interesting because sometimes people feel that if I have a sponsor, it means I'm okay. And it doesn't, it doesn't. So we wanna make sure that we're only working with people 
who really mean business, who really want this and are willing to do the work. Otherwise, maybe in a year from now, when they're really at bottom, they're going to say, oh, yeah, I tried those 12 steps and they didn't work. And that would just really be a shame. So on page 97, it tells us how far we have to go in helping people. And it tells us helping others is the foundation stone of your recovery. So that's interesting. It doesn't say getting a food plan. Of course, we all have to you know, refrain from compulsive eating, but the foundation stone of my recovery, it's not even prayer and meditation, it's helping others. Because really when we're helping others, especially when it's a self-sacrifice, that's really our applying our faith, right? I could be a diabetic and believe in insulin and believe, yeah, insulin helps. But as long as I'm not injecting it into my arm, it does me no good that I believe in insulin. And that was me before I recovered. I, be I always believed in God. It did me no good because I led a selfish, self-centered life. Helping others is living our faith. That's like, you know, a diabetic would have to inject the insulin. We need to help others. That's how we live our faith and don't have it just be like a barren faith. And it really tells us how far we have to go. It says, yeah, being kind once in a while, that doesn't cut it. You have to be the good Samaritan every day if need be. So just for those who are interested, the Good Samaritan is a reference to a parable in the New Testament. It's in Luke 10, 23, if anyone wants to look it up. But um, the gist of it is, is a man stops and he finds someone who was like beaten half dead by robbers. And he put him on his own horse, donkey, whatever he was riding. And he walked and he took the man to an inn and he bandaged up his wounds and he paid for him and asked the innkeeper to, you know, keep an eye on him until he got back. So he went really out of his way. And it tells us that it may cost us money, time, inconvenience. I mean, here's some of the examples they say. A drunk may smash the furniture in your home or burn a mattress. Sometimes you will have to call a doctor and administer sedatives under his direction. Now, I don't think we as compulsive eaters ever need to deal with things as extreme as that, but it, but it causes me to ask myself, what am I giving up? What am I willing to sacrifice? For me, one thing I had to um, wrestle with was um, in the summer, you know, I'm in New Jersey, so we don't, we're not like all you California and Florida people who have eternal summer. Um, we just have about three months. And I didn't get to lay out by the pool as much as I would if I wasn't in this program. Um, it's an inconvenience. It takes time. There were beautiful, gorgeous, sunny afternoons when I was inside on Zoom meetings or working with people. Um, but you know what the option is for me to be out by my gorgeous pool, binging my head off while I'm sitting out by the pool. So helping others is the foundation stone of our recovery. So if you're new and you can't sponsor, there's always ways to help others. And who are the others? It could be the people living in our house. 
um, which is often the hardest people to be helpful to. It can be our neighbors, it can be our friends, but we have to look for ways to help others. Bottom of page 97, they tell us um, what to do if someone doesn't respond and the family's all distraught. And again, I think this applies more often with alcoholics than compulsive eaters, but there's some good principles here because some of us, um, you know, we're saints, right? But we may have family members, husbands or kids who just aren't quite up to our spiritual level. Um, if there's anyone listening on a recording, yes, I am being sarcastic. Um, so they're not up to just our level of sainthood. So what are we supposed to do if people aren't acting the way we want? It tells us if we accept and practice spiritual principles, there's a much better chance that the other people will recover. And even if they don't, life will become more bearable for us. Well, so here's a question, right? How come if we accept and practice spiritual principles, others may get better? How, how does that work, right? If I inject insulin, other diabetics in my house aren't going to get better if they're not injecting insulin. But now we're talking about spirit, being, uh, you know, living life on a spiritual plane. If I'm practicing spiritual principles, it means I'm patient, more patient. It means I'm not pointing out other people's faults. It means I'm trying to be helpful. So it makes a calm atmosphere and everyone doesn't have to walk on eggshells around me. And the second thing, of course, if I'm practicing spiritual principles, I've invited God in and he's capable of changing people's hearts. I'm not, he is, but I am capable of practicing spiritual principles in my house, which makes things a lot easier. Page 98, they tell us, okay, you may be sponsoring someone who says, yeah, as long as I don't have a job or as long as things with my husband aren't working, I can't, I'm not gonna be able to stop binging. Until I have fill in the blank, I won't be able to stop. And it doesn't work that way. It says, um, we simply do not stop drinking or binging so long as we place dependence upon other people ahead of dependence on God. And then it says, burn the idea, they're talking to a sponsor now, burn the idea into the conscious of every man that he can get well regardless of anyone. The only condition is that he trusts in God or clean house. So what they're telling us is we need to really teach our sponsees, they need to depend upon God ahead of on us. So often at the beginning, you know, the sponsee comes to us and, you know, all sorts of problems. And, you know, we help, we give some guidance, but as they go through the steps, um, we start saying what my sponsor generally says to me, if I call her with an issue, she says, did you go to God first? We wanna just teach people as sponsors, their dependence is on God. They should go to God first. Then it's like, okay, then you call your sponsor. It's like, okay, I have this problem. I went to God. This is kind of what I feel the right thing is. And then to have a sponsor to bounce it off of. Um, 
but it says burn the idea into the consciousness. So that means it's really important. We can get well regardless of anyone or any circumstance. We have to trust God. So that's really steps two and three, teach us how to do that and clean house, steps four through nine. And then they um, give advice that the sponsor can give the sponsee about how to handle things in the home. Bottom of page 98, it says, though his family be at fault in many respects, right? And isn't it always our family's faults? He shouldn't be concerned about that. So that means I have to put it to the side, everything wrong that the other people are doing. Now, obviously we need to use common sense. If we have small children and they wanna go play in traffic, we're not supposed to say, yeah, I'm not supposed to be concerned with what you're doing, right? We have an obligation to protect their safety. Um, but it says he, meaning us, the people in recovery, should concentrate on his own spiritual demonstration. Argument and fault finding are to be avoided like the plague. It says, this may be a difficult thing to do, but it must be done if any results are to be expected. Well, we all know something about plagues now, right? And what do we do to avoid the plague? You know, not to get political or into any controversy, but we can put on a mask, right? That's one accepted way to avoid a plague. Maybe we need to put on kind of a spiritual mask so that we don't do the argument or fault finding. Um, some old timer in AA told me this great prayer. She called it the shut up prayer. God, please keep one hand on my shoulder and the other across my mouth. God, keep one hand on my shoulder and the other across my mouth. Okay, so no arguing, no finding fault. And it says we have to do this if any results are to be expected. So that means if I expect to stop binging, I have to avoid argument and fault finding in my house. So it's not just about um, get a food plan, do what we can to stick to it, do assignments our sponsors give us, pray, meditate, talk to our fellows, go to meetings. We have to start practicing what we know in our house. So no arguing, no fault finding with our family members. And so this is something if we relapse, if someone, God forbid, relapses, she can ask herself, am I indulging, because that's really what it is, in argument and fault finding in my home? Because they're telling us that's a cause of relapse. But on the flip side, they say, um, top of page 99, if persisted in for a few months, the effect on the family is sure to be great. That's a promise. That if I avoid arguing and fault finding and instead practice love and tolerance, it's going to have an effect on my family. And then it tells me what my effect, what the effect is. The family may see their own defects and admit them. I mean, if I'm going around saying, yeah, that was really selfish, I'm sorry. It makes it easier for other people to say, you know what? No, I'm, you know, I was selfish. I know with my son, the best way to diffuse him when he would get angry would for me to listen and say, you may be right. I'm, you know, I'm sorry. Yeah, I really was 
selfish. And then he'd say, no, 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 you're good. I was just, you know, so when we do it, when we admit our own faults, it makes it harder for other people to point out our faults to us if we've already done it. And when they do, if we agree, we can apologize. If not, we can always say, you know what? I'll, I'll give that some thought. Maybe it's true. We, ne- we don't want to just say, no, 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 you're wrong. We can always say, maybe, I'll think about it. So they tell us no matter what our families are like, we have to be sober, considerate, and helpful. So I think sober, right? I, I no longer have a, you know, whole pizzas and whole cakes on the dishes. Considerate, I do my own dishes. I don't leave them in the sink. Helpful, I do the dishes of other people who leave them in the, the sink. And it says, yeah, we fall below that standard plenty of times, but, and here's again, how to relapse. We must try to repair the damage immediately lest we pay the penalty by a spree. So it tells me that if I'm not sober, considerate, helpful, um, okay, of course I'm gonna fall below the standard, but I need to fix it. I can't go around being a mean and nasty person to my family members and say, but I'm doing all my assignments and I'm making my three phone calls a day, so I should be safe and protected. Uh Uh-uh, we have to practice this. Okay, I'm going to go to page 100. Um, one of my favorite paragraphs. Um, Karen, can you read it? So it's both you. Sure. Um, both you and the new man must walk day by day in the path of spiritual progress. If you persist, remarkable things will happen. When we look back, we realize that the things which came to us when we put our ourselves in God's hands were better than anything we could have planned. Are you, Karen, you're muted. I know how I got muted. Okay. Follow the dictates of a higher power and you will presently live in a new and wonderful world, no matter what your present circumstances. Thank you. Um, This is my second favorite line in the book. When we look back, we realize that the things which came to us when we put ourselves in God's hands were better than anything we could have planned. So that means if I took a piece of paper and I wrote down like my best plans, you know, like retire to an island that has perfect weather all the time, um, you know, have all the best books in the world lined up for me to read for the rest of my life, you know, everything, my best plans. It's basically saying, Janet, tear up that list because God's plans for you are better. But of course they are. My imagination and my brains are limited. God's imagination, God's brains, infinite. Better than anything I could have planned. And I have to tell you, my life now is better than anything I could have planned. Um, But what do we have to do? Put ourselves in God's hands. How do we do that? How do we do that? So what we, how we do that is pretty much our third step is we live our lives trying to think what would God have me do and do it and leave the results up to him. So that's how we put ourselves in God's hands. Um, and then a conditional promise, a beautiful promise. If, 
So the condition is we follow the dictates of a higher power. So what God wants us to do, then the promise is we will presently live in a new and wonderful world, no matter what your present circumstances. Well, what's that new and wonderful world? Bill Wilson describes it as the fourth dimension of existence. It's just living on a spiritual plane. And in practical terms, what does that mean? I think for me, what it means is I can go through life and not sweat the small stuff so much because I know that God's got my back. And ultimately, he'll make everything right. Maybe not today, maybe not next week. He's got his, his timetable, which is certainly better than mine. But ultimately, everything's going to turn out for the good. Now, am I perfect at it? Never get any fear? No, of course not. Um, but that's, that's my goal. And I have to say, like, through working this year after year, um, remember, we talk about God rewires our hearts to make us more like him. And it's easier. It's, it's a lot easier than it used to be. And it says, we'll live in this new and wonderful world, no matter what our present circumstances, God can overcome circumstances. He can just overcome bad circumstances and turn them around into something good. Okay, um, bottom of page 100, it says, assuming we're spiritually fit, we can do all sorts of things alcoholics are not supposed to do, like go where liquor is served, um, go into bars. And it says, this isn't necessarily so. So that means maybe. And they say, again, assuming we're spiritually fit. So someone who's coming around right off the bat, you know, um, generally till they're a good way through the steps, we would say, yeah, don't go to a bar. Don't go into an ice cream parlor. Um, at the beginning, we're not spiritually fit. So the smart thing is to avoid it. But once we get through the steps, we don't have to live that way forever. You know, we can take our kids to the ice cream parlor and not be concerned about what's going on, what the flavors are. Um, that'll happen once we're spiritually fit. In the next paragraph, it tells us we meet these conditions every day. An alcoholic who cannot meet them still has an alcoholic mind. So remember, when we're first starting, we do have alcoholic minds. But as we get through the steps, we change, right? Page 64 tells us once the spiritual malady is overcome, we straighten out mentally and physically. So once we start getting our souls in order, how? And remember, they told us trusting God and clean house. We do that, our souls get in order. And then it's like automatic, our mind starts getting in order too. We're able to think clearly without, the, um, without all the fear and the resentment and the judgment and just the, the, um, the lies of the illness clouding our thinking. And then we no longer have an alcoholic mind. And they say, once, basically, once you're recovered, if you can't do that, you still have an alcoholic mind. And what that means is there's something wrong with your spiritual status. So we don't go trying to clean up our mind. We clean up our soul. Have I been 
argumentative in my house? Have I been dishonest? Um, am I not trusting God? Am I, you know, am I being overly prideful? So we look to see what's the spiritual problem so that we can get back on track. And it says for someone who still has an alcoholic mind, um, his own, it says his only chance for sobriety would be someplace like the Greenland ice cap. And even there, an Eskimo might turn up with a bottle of scotch and ruin everything. So basically, um, at the beginning, yes, it's prudent to stay out of ice cream parlors, right? Um, but if a year down the road, we're still feeling like, oh, I, I, I can't go in, there's, you know, it like, then there's something wrong with our spiritual status. And it says then really no place is safe. Um, I know of a woman, she went to, she checked herself into an eating disorder rehab and she sent herself a candy gram. I mean, if we want food, we're going to get it. And they say, um, we don't shield other people from temptation, talking like to a wife, you don't hide everything from your husband so he doesn't drink or so he doesn't binge. Um, but of course, at the beginning, we can shield ourselves from temptation, right? I'm not gonna go out, you know, if when I was new, um, I've talked about this before, I was brand new and my company had a pizza parley, party. I shielded myself from temptation. I brought my own lunch and I ate in the back room. But again, 30 years down, you know, down the line working this, if I still couldn't be in the same room with a food I couldn't have, there would be something wrong with my spiritual condition. So they tell us when you're going someplace, see if there's a legitimate reason for being there. And when you're there, um, go to see how you can contribute to the occasion, how you can be helpful to the people there, how you can make it more joyful. And a, a great principle to live by, page 102, don't think of what you will get out of the occasion, think of what you can bring to it. Then they have a caveat. But if you're shaky, you would better work with another alcoholic instead. So if we're shaky, right, even if we've been around a while and we feel shaky, then we go and we fix up, we fix ourselves up. We take a day, we clean up what's going wrong with us, what's wrong inside of us. And we go and we make ourselves be useful to someone else. Um, page 102 again, the second full paragraph says what our job is now. now. Obviously, we still have jobs, right? We're teachers, we're business people, we have jobs. But it says your job, and remember, God is our employer with the capital E. Um, he became our employer in our third step. So our job with a capital J is to be at the place where you may be of maximum helpfulness to others. So that's our job. Again, we don't go quit our jobs. We don't quit our day jobs, but we realize that's our purpose here on earth. I think a lot of you are probably like me. I used to always say, why am I here? Why am I here? What's my purpose? What's my purpose? And this program gives us a great sense of purpose to be at the place where we may be of maximum helpfulness. Whether we end up being helpful or not, that's God's business, not ours. My job is to just show up. Bottom of 102, it says, many of us keep liquor in our homes 
and we serve it to green recruits or to our friends who aren't alcoholics. But some of us say we should never serve liquor to anyone. How to resolve that? This is what they say. We never argue this question. Each family ought to decide that for themselves. So again, we don't sit there. There may be um, people who say no one should ever have certain ingredients. And then there may be people who say it's an individual decision. We don't argue. We you know, work out our food plans with our sponsors. We don't pass judgment on you know, other people's food plans. And it tells us, page 103, we are careful never to show intolerance or hatred of drinking as an institution. And I have the word drinking crossed out and I wrote the word sugar. You know, just because someone may have an allergy to something doesn't give us the right to just, um, just say it's bad, carte blanche bad. I have a severe cat allergy. I can't go near cats. I don't sit there and say, all cats are bad. No one should ever have a cat. I just know for me, I can't handle being around cats. And it tells us if we have an attitude like that, like all sugar is, no one should ever have sugar. It's not helpful to anyone. And they say, every new alcoholic looks for this spirit among us and is immensely relieved when he finds we are not witch burners. Well, what's a witch burner? A witch burner is someone who says, if you're not like me, you're evil. If you do something that I don't think is okay, you're evil. We don't do that. Again, other people's food plans, none of my business. And they close by saying, someday we hope Alcoholics Anonymous will help the public to a better realization of the gravity of the alcoholic problem. So this is a grave problem that we have. And it says, but we shall be of little use if our attitude is one of bitterness or hostility. You know, my husband can eat whatever he wants. God bless him. You know, we go out, he orders stuff that I can't have. It's fine. You know, I'm not bitter and I'm not hostile toward him. I don't sit there and say, how dare you, you know, eat that in front of me. It's, a, it's okay. And then they close and they just say, our problems were of our own making. Remember back in chapter five, it says selfishness and self-centeredness is the root of the illness. Our problems are of our own making. Bottles were only a symbol. Compulsive eating is only a symbol. It's a symptom that there's something wrong with my spirit. And it says, we have stopped fighting anybody or anything. We have to. So it's interesting in a chapter working with others about how to help someone and take them through the steps. The last thing they tell us is, and they're not talking to a newcomer here. They're talking to a sponsor. We don't fight. We have to stop fighting. Argument and fault finding to be avoided like the plague. And that is all I have. Great. Thank